From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She was a toddler when she was incarcerated at Camp Amachi in southeast Colorado with thousands of Japanese Americans during World War II. But Carlene Tanagoshi's memories are vivid. I could actually visualize where the cot was that my parents slept on. The cot was where I slept on the potbelly stove, the single light bulb from the center of the uh, room. What might it take to make Camp Amachi a national historic site? Then Hunter Biden shares how in the throes of addiction to alcohol and cocaine, support from his family helped him change everything. My entire family, all of us, never once wavered. We always stuck together. Biden talks with Vic Vela in Back From Broken. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. When she was a toddler, Carlene Tanagoshi Tinker and her family were taken from their home in California. It was the beginning of World War II. The U.S. government forced thousands of Japanese Americans on the West Coast into internment camps. Tinker's family was interned at a camp in southeast Colorado called Amachi. Now Colorado lawmakers are pushing for it to become a national historic site. Carlene Tanagoshi Tinker is here with us. Hi, Carlene. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Bonnie Clark joins us as well. She's an archaeologist and directs the University of Denver's Amachi Research Project. Welcome, Bonnie. Thank you. Good morning. Carlene, let's start with some of your story. You're 81 years old now, so you were very young during World War II, just a toddler. What's your most distinct memory of being at Amachi? Oh, golly, there are so many, but one really stands out. Uh, given your your climate uh, of being very dry. Uh, there were constant uh, sandstorms. And when my dad would take me to dinner where we had to stand in line for the mess hall, he would hoist me up on, my, on his shoulders, wrap a scarf around my face so I wouldn't get blinded by the sand. And there we were three times a day lining up for our food. Wow. And that must have been such a change from California where you had been growing up. You also remember taking a bath, right? Oh, yeah. That, that too, is really memorable, um, particularly since we found those on one of the Amachi field schools recently. Uh, customarily, my mom, my two uh, maternal aunts, and I would march off to uh, our bathtub. And in Japanese, it's called ofuro. And typically they're built on top of a platform. They're typically enclosed by uh, like a, a house, maybe like a gazebo. And uh, the tin, the water is held in a tin, looks like a trough for horses. It's on top of a, uh, a coal source of heat, 
there are cinder blocks that are born, uh, being burned underneath. Well, in our case, ours was not enclosed. I would remember walking up to the platform with my mom and my aunts. And as is also the custom, you wash before with soap and water, then you rinse and then you get into the tub. And I can still feel, isn't that funny? I can still feel the sensation of the warm water. And as I looked up as a little kid, I'm looking at the stars on a black sky. What an amazing memory. And I still remember that quite vividly. Wow, that is so vivid. When your family was finally released from the camp, you moved back to California. How much did your parents talk with you about that time at Amachi? You know, I think for a lot of people, a lot of people of my age, we ask each other, did your parents ever really talk about this? And in my case, they did not. Uh, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because of shame, embarrassment, or it may also have been because, you know, you accept what you were, um, that you were in camp and life goes on, life goes forward. But in any case, uh, for me, I did not have that experience of people talking to me at home. Many Japanese Americans who were interned lost virtually everything, or they had to sell off their businesses, homes, possessions at very low prices. Was that the case for your family? Well, um, in my case, we were living in Los Angeles. My parents didn't own um, any property like so many farmers, for example. So in our case, we did not lose very much. Uh, So for us, it was not as tragic as it was for lots of people. Some of the volunteers in our um, Amachi Field School, their parents lost their farms. They had nothing to come back to. So for them, they had a great loss. Bonnie, let's bring you in here. You've been playing a key role in uncovering much of the history at Amachi. Can you describe what the place looks like now? Well, you know, for anybody in uh, Colorado who has been out to the High Plains, you know, once you get past the Front Range and you head east, you know, imagine those those that kind of, you know, sort of rolling sandy hills with um, sagebrush and yucca. And that's really what it looks like, um, except that at Amachi, especially as you get closer, you start to see rows and rows of trees. And those trees were all planted by um, the incarceries at Amachi. You also, as you come up, um, you're gonna, typically you're gonna come through the Arkansas Valley. So you'll be along the train tracks and those are the train tracks that that brought people to Amachi. Um, They came in on the train. And then you you, uh, turn up and you go through the fields that were uh, helped to support the people in the camp. They were part of the project. And so you've got this historic irrigation line with big cotton tree, cottonwood trees along it. And then as you hit up at Amachi, that's where you see, uh, first off, the roads are still there. They're crushed limestone. So they kind of stand out, this, these white roads. And then as you move further up the hill and into the camp is when you start to see little concrete pads on either side. And those are the foundations for the buildings that were there. And for the most part, those are still present. And you start to notice the trees and um, there are now a few buildings that have been reconstructed as well as a couple of the important key features, one of the guard towers um, as well as 
uh, the water tower. And if you do get out and wander around, you might find um, a chunk of a tin can or uh, uh, the top of a, a soda bottle um, cap. Uh, we have, you know, lots of little things that are remnants of, you know, the thousands of people who live there. And on top of reconstructing some of these buildings, you've done quite a bit of excavating at the camp. Tell me about a discovery that you found particularly helpful for understanding the place. The, well, there's so many of them. Um, but one that, that actually happened relatively recently and touches on Carlene's experience is that we, a lot of our work is driven by two different things. So as a professor at the University of Denver, you know, we have an on, this ongoing research project that's really geared towards better understanding the camp landscape because we understand that to be a way that the expertise of so many of these, you know, folks who were making their living as agriculturalists, you know, so as farmers, as nursery um, owners, as people who um, owned truck farms. So knowing how they took their expertise in growing things and, and like, implemented it in this entirely new place of the High Plains of Colorado was a way that we could really see both their expertise and then something that we've seen is really a source of resilience for them in terms of the gardening and landscaping. Um, but I also oversee a bunch of student research projects. And so uh, those, you know, we, we go and, and do things that are based uh, on what are the thesis projects of my students we're also out there helping the site managers, um, basically the town of Grenada, to do archaeology in ahead of when they do site developments, and that's an important part of preservation law to be able to make sure that at this really significant site that you're not impacting these important um, archaeological resources. So recently, they uh, returned a historic recreation hall. And recreation halls are really important. There was one in every barracks block and different activities happened in them, including um, in about four of them, they were uh, nursery schools, uh, preschools. And so we were doing some research ahead of one of these preschools. And what we found is that, um, is that there was a line of trees and those trees were planted on the south side of the building. Now this was not the public side of the building. The north side of the building was where everybody else, because that was where the ball fields were. And so people would have really seen that. And if they wanted to have a sort of showpiece, that would have been where you put your garden. But instead it was on the south side. And what that does though, is that these are, these are deciduous trees that would have leafed out. And then they would have provided shade for these buildings that were not well insulated and knowing that this uh, was a recreation, uh, this recreation hall was used as a preschool really helped us understand why you would prioritize um, creating a more suitable microclimate uh, for, these, for these little types who would have spent um, time in the, in the um, camp there. And something that we also find that is um, you know, kind of to be expected is that this nice little space that they've created, not only does it shade it, but it creates a shaded play space and in every single excavation unit that we dug in that area, uh, we found um, at least one or two marbles. 
Oh, wow. So, I mean, just listening to you, there's obviously a lot of agricultural expertise that went into so many of these decisions that were made. Carlene, you've done some excavating with Bonnie over the last 10 years, and you've made a lot of discoveries. You mentioned the bathtub. You also saw the barracks where your family lived. Now bipartisan members of Colorado's delegation are pushing in Congress to have Amachi named as a National Historic Site. Carlene, what would that mean for you? Well, I'll tell you, it's uh, going to camp was the beginning of my life, beginning of my personal history, and seeing it become a national park unit would sort of bring sort of it full circle to a very nice um, culmination. It gives a sort of a nice uh, package uh, to my personal history, and it would be something that would be shared for generations to see what we as a, a group of people were wrongfully sent away. But in spite of that, we made the best of it. We survived. And I think we gave back to the country in spite of how we were treated. So I think, I think it would be wonderful. And for that reason, among others, of course, uh, it's important that, uh, Amachi be recognized as a national park. And I hope with the uh, response that we're getting now that it looks like it may actually become a reality. And Bonnie, in about the minute we have left, what would it mean to you and for this place, for 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 it to be designated a national historic site? Well, the thing about a park service site is that it is, um, uh, it's, protected in perpetuity. That's the way that the Parks Service is. And and I think that's so important for a place like Amachi, particularly because it does have such good physical integrity. And so Amachi not only tells its own story, but it helps to tell the story of the other of the 10 camps that don't have that sort of legibility, that you can't go and and experience that cultural landscape. And I also think that Amachi really tells the story of the Asian American experience in the American heartland. And I think that's such an important experience right now for us to be grappling with and understanding that those histories, the history of agriculture and sugar beet farming and growing onions in Colorado is an Asian American story. I just want to thank you both so much for being here. Carlene Tanagoshi Tinker was incarcerated with her family during World War II at the former internment camp in southeast Colorado, Amachi. Bonnie Clark is a professor of archaeology at the University of Denver and director of DU's Amachi Research Project. Special thanks to producer Andrea Dukakis for bringing us that story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hunter Biden's struggle with addiction has been intense and very public. His battle with alcohol and cocaine addiction came under scrutiny as his father, Joe Biden, ran for president. But Hunter found the help that he needed with his family's support. He shares the story in his new book, Beautiful Things. Hunter Biden recently spoke with Vic Vela, host of CPR's podcast about recovery. Let's listen to the season two finale of Back from Broken. And speaking of my son, the way you talk about the military... Okay, it's September of 2020. 
Democratic candidate Joe Biden is debating Republican President Donald Trump on national TV. And all of a sudden, things turn personal. Biden's son Hunter, who struggled with addiction for years, becomes the focus of the debate. Hunter got thrown out of the military. He was thrown out, dishonorably discharged. That's not true. For it wasn't cocaine use. And he didn't have a job until you became vice president. Once you None became of that vice president, he made a fortune in Ukraine, in China, in Moscow, that is simply and various not other places. True. He my made son, a fortune. Gentlemen, my son. And he didn't have a job. My son, like a lot of people, like a lot of people we know at home, had a drug problem. He's overtaken it. He's, he's, he's fixed it. He's worked on it. And I'm proud of him. But why I'm was proud he giving tens son. of millions? Right. Of hey, Hunter, how's it going? Hey, Vic, how are you? It's good to talk to you. What did that moment mean to you after all the hell your addiction put your dad through? Well, you know, in the moment, it's exactly what I knew that he would say, not because it was some rehearsed thing, um, because the one thing I do know from suffering from addiction, but also from being in recovery, is that I don't know anybody, Vic, that doesn't have someone in their life, if it's not them personally, who has gone through at least a part of the hell that my family and I have gone through around addiction. I have never met anyone, and I don't know if you have, that hasn't come up to me and said, thank you for telling your story because my son or my, my, uh, yeah. my dad or my uncle everybody has um has an experience with it and when he looked into that camera and said i'm proud of my son i think a lot of people saw their dad and hoped that their dad would be that same person today on the podcast how hunter biden faced down his personal demons despite an intense political spotlight and how he did it with the help of his family I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. I've been wanting to do your show. I've listened to all of almost all of them, and uh, what you're doing is is amazing. I, I really appreciate you having me on. I got a message through a friend of a friend that they're interested in having me come on the show, and I told everybody the only thing I want to do is is this show. Wow! Because <laughs> I listened to your story, and there are so many parallels, and it, it felt like the first time I walked into a room in a meeting and heard other people talk so openly and honestly about what they had gone through. It gives, it gave me so much hope. And uh, mm-hmm. I know you're giving a lot of other people a lot of hope. Oh man, that means a lot. And, and I got to tell you, before we get into Hunter's story, I just want to remind you that this is a show about recovery, not politics. So all the stuff Donald Trump was bashing Hunter for in that debate clip, We're not going to get into any of that. Look, I've been to hundreds of recovery meetings, and not once has anyone talked about politics or asked who you voted for. 
We only care about getting better. Hunter recently published a memoir called Beautiful Things. In it, he covers more about his addiction struggles than we could possibly touch on in our interview. And there's so much personal heartache in it, too, including where he opens up about a car crash that killed Hunter's mom and sister when he was a child. What resonated most for me as someone in recovery was how Hunter's family was there for him through it all, including his dad, who's now the president of the United States, and Hunter's brother, Bo Biden, former attorney general of Delaware, who also won the Bronze Star for his military service in Iraq. Bo was always there to help Hunter through some of the lowest moments in his life until Bo died of cancer in 2015. It's hard to even talk about Bo thinking of me as any as, as separate from him in any way, to tell you the truth. Uh, we were we were that close. We talked almost every day of our lives, except for maybe the period of time that Bo was serving in Iraq. And he was just a constant. He was always there, as I was for him, too. Um, and he was always there to say, OK, let's get back up. We can we can do it together just constantly. We hear it all the time when we're in the throes of addiction and the people who love us, the first thing they ask is why, why, why? But Bo didn't do that. No. And I think it's the, the most frustrating question that you can ask an addict because uh, there's no good answer. And he never, he never asked because he knew that. He knew me so well that uh, he knew that I wouldn't consciously be making a choice to harm myself uh, in the way that I was, whether it was through um, alcohol or crack or whatever uh, drug that was, uh, you know, that I could get my hands on at, at the time. Bo Biden was instrumental in getting Hunter help for alcoholism in 2003. Hunter was 33 years old at the time, and it was his first attempt at getting sober. He actually took you to your first uh, AA meeting and took you to rehab, right? Yeah, he he um, he became. I actually became really close with all the people in uh, that uh, that were in my um, uh, home meeting. And oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and I said to my dad one time, I said, "Why did you make us love each other so much?" Um, and it's an, I think an incredible compliment uh, to my dad, but also it was a uh, you know, a real question. Like God, it's it's hard uh, when you feel the same level of emotion that when another person is in pain as I did when my brother was sick. Hunter Biden stayed sober for seven years after Bo helped him in 2003. He was married and had a family and his life was stable. But things changed when his dad became vice president of the United States. This was a new challenge for Hunter. He'd been working as a lobbyist, but the Obama team didn't like the idea of the vice president's son doing that kind of work. So he had to change careers and shifted his focus on investing in natural resource and tech companies. By 2010, the stress of starting his career all over 
derailed his recovery. Well, number one, it's just it's stressful. It's stressful yeah. at any any time in your life. I mean, everyone has probably gone through it and figuring out, you know, how are you going to pay the bills? And um, it, it was difficult, but it wasn't an excuse to start drinking again. Uh, but what I did was what everybody um, told me in uh, my meeting and the guys that I was sober with and talked to on a daily basis. They, I did exactly what I had told from the very beginning not to do is I stopped going to meetings as much. Uh, I always, you know, at the end had, a, you know, an excuse. Well, I can't go because, it's, you know, the anonymity is, um, you know, difficult now with the, my dad as vice president. I, I can't go because I have so much work to do to figure out how I'm going to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. I, there was always an excuse. And, you know, I found myself on a plane back from Europe after a business trip. And I was um, sitting alone and a uh, flight attendant came by and I was just about seven years sober and uh, asked me if I wanted to drink. And, you know, without even thinking, I said, sure, I'll have a Bloody Mary. And then it was off to the races. You, um, you know, that began, you know, kind of a long back and forth of, uh, you know, relapses and, and rehab trips. It was a real hard time for you. And then, of course, Bo got sick. Um, you write, and this, this really jumped out at me, Hunter, um, that uh, you actually told him, you, you told him that you, you promised you would take care of yourself and, and you would stop drinking when he was in the hospital, right? Yep. Yep. How yeah. hard was, how difficult was that, you know, knowing that, um, you know, what happened afterward where you, it just became harder for you? I still have an enormous amount of guilt over it. And it's still hard to think back to that promise and realize uh, and, and know that I, that I broke it. Uh, and I think that, part of the reason that uh, I knew I had to write this book is that it's not only important that you get honest with the people around you um, when you're an addict, but it is absolutely necessary that you get honest with yourself. And one of the things I need to be honest with is that I broke a promise to the person that um, meant more to me in the world than anything. Um, my brother, who I, who I never broke a promise to. And the trick is, is that guilt is an appropriate uh, feeling to have when you do something wrong. Uh, but if you allow it to morph into shame, uh, it can be incredibly toxic, particularly yeah. to an addict. Yeah, that's exactly right. And did you carry that shame for a while? Oh, God, I drank over it and used over it and stayed hidden over it uh, for years until um, until I got clean uh, uh, close to two years ago. I mean, it was it was the constant um, that shame uh, more than anything else. Well, let's talk about what the the drinking looked like after uh, Bo passed away. Um, 
you wrote something in the book that said, I was scared to death of what Bo's passing was going to do to uh, Joe, your dad. Um, and, and Joe Biden was scared to death of what it was going to do to you. Um, how did your addiction worsen after Bo passed away? Well, grief is a incredibly complicated thing. And uh, when I, I know that we were all grieving um, before the day that Bo actually died because of the inevitability of the disease that he had, um, which is glioblastoma multiform or uh, brain cancer um, for short, but it's a death sentence. And when Bo died, there was such an outpouring of love, just such an outpouring of love that uh, from thousands, literally thousands and thousands of people stood in line at, uh, at uh, his uh, casket. Wow. And, and the stories that each and every one of them had about um, my brother or my brother and me or my dad, my brother and me. But after that period of uh, euphoria, for lack of a better phrase, after Bo died in the sense of just feeling so enveloped by love and it begins to fade and the realization of just how alone in your grief you are, just like everyone is. Uh, and the, the way in which the family um, and the people closest to me um, were dealing with the same thing that I was dealing with. And I did what, um, what addicts are prone to do, I reached for um, the thing that I knew that would um, push the pain away. And, you know, and I, and I went out and I bought a bottle of vodka and, uh, and then that was the beginning of a, a relapse that uh, lasted uh, for far too long and did far too much damage. After the break, Hunter Biden's recovery story and the conclusion of Back from Broken. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. As exhausting and overwhelming as it may sometimes be, I never question whether it is meaningful. Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee. One of the great joys of my job is that the reporters I work with bring me stories they want to tell. And they're right to be a part of helping bring the stories that they are passionate about to people, to bring these voices to people, is really meaningful work. Listen for the work of the Colorado Public Radio Newsroom every day here on CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Now, how did everything change for Hunter Biden? Let's listen to the conclusion of Back from Broken and Biden's recovery story. Here's host Vic Vela. From 2016 to 2019, Hunter Biden's life was a mess. He and his wife divorced, and he drank and smoked crack just about every day. His attempts to get clean just weren't working. At one point, Hunter drove from the East Coast to Arizona to check into a wellness clinic there, but his drive basically became a 14-day crack-fueled bender. In 2018, he spent the spring in Los Angeles, holed up at the Chateau Marmot. That's the hotel where actor John Belushi died from an overdose. Hunter would party with strangers, smoking all day. 
Occasionally, he would take drives through L.A.'s Laurel Canyon Boulevard, and he'd write poignant letters to Bo as he watched the sunrise from Runyon Canyon. Then he would go back to the hotel, where he would cook and smoke crack all night. Hunter ended up moving back east in the fall of 2018. His family, especially Joe Biden and his stepmother Jill, were desperate to get him help. Hunter, take us back, and it was probably around this time, uh, back to a period in either late 2018 or early 2019 when you got a call from your mother, Jill Biden, um, inviting you to dinner at your parents' place in Delaware. What happened when you got there? She was imploring me to come see them because they missed me so much. I had been living in, uh, unbeknownst to them, in motels, uh, up and down uh, 95 between Wilmington, Delaware, and Boston. And uh, for some reason, I, I picked up the phone. My dad would call me every day and still does and always has. And if he doesn't get me, he texts me 32 times. But I was ignoring them all. But for some reason, I answered my mom's call. And, and, uh, and somehow she got through to me and I said, okay, I'll, I'll come down. I was only a couple hours away. And I drive down the driveway and I walk in uh, and immediately see my three daughters, um, uh, who are all adults now, 27, 22, and 20, Naomi Finnegan and Maisie, and my niece and nephew, uh, Hunter, who's named after me, and Natalie, and two counselors, and my mom and dad. And I just said, you know, screw this. I, are you have to be kidding me? I'm not, I am not doing this. And I uh, just walked back out of the house intending to go to my car. And my daughters came running out after me. And I, um, and one of them grabbed my keys and was begging me, dad, please, please, please. And I said, honey, I can't, I'm not doing this. You, I can't believe that you guys did this to me. This is so wrong. It's so, I, 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 I felt such the victim. And I literally decided, I, okay, take the keys. I'm, I'm going to walk out of here. And uh, I started up the driveway and my dad ran after me and put his hand on my shoulder and turned me around and just put me in a bear hug and said, honey, and just started to cry. They said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Please, please help me. Tell me what to do. And I said, okay, dad, all right. I'll, I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna go get help. I'm, I'll do it, I'll do it tonight. And I, I knew that, uh, that I had no intention whatsoever to do what I just told them. And that's how powerful my addiction was, because I don't know a greater love than that. What do you suppose was going through your dad's mind as he held you and cried? I think uh, I know exactly what was going through his mind, which was that he just had lost his oldest son and he was about to lose his only living other son. And I know that, that there's nothing more important to my dad above everything 
than his family. One thing I always say when I tell my story um, is that, you know, while my addiction was very painfully personally, of course, it was much worse on my parents. Oh, and everybody that loves you around you. And I just, I, I keep it at the top of my, um, my brain. That pain that I caused, just to, that the, the frustration, beyond frustration, the despair, the people f- that are trying to save someone feel when they try and try again and try again and just can't get through. And so often erroneously think that it has anything to do with their, in, their deficiencies because it doesn't. Even the most heartfelt intervention doesn't always lead directly to recovery. When Hunter arrived at rehab in March of 2019, he called an Uber before he even checked in. The driver then dropped Hunter off at the airport where he boarded a plane to California. Hunter was committed to only one thing, vanishing for good. It was around this time that Hunter started to become a punching bag for conservative critics who were on television asking the world, where's Hunter? At that time, Hunter was holed up in an Airbnb in Malibu, drinking and smoking crack. He says he didn't really notice those attacks on TV. Vic, I was smoking crack every 15 minutes. I was sleeping maybe 10 hours a week, maybe. Oh my gosh. And, these attacks that started to come in from, uh, you know, the right wing media and Rudy Giuliani and others, um, to tell you the truth, there's a part of me that could have cared less. Uh, if it didn't have to do with where I was going to, um, uh, find my, my next hit, how I was going to smoke my next hit and who was, uh, going to be there. It didn't enter my, my consciousness. Yeah, so it sounds like they didn't make matters worse for you because you were already there. Oh, I was already there. I think that they intended to make matters worse. Um, uh, but, uh, But I think the opposite actually ended up happening. What happened next changed everything for Hunter. It was May 2019. And he had just been kicked out of his hotel because of all the people going in and out at all times of the day. He was sitting near the pool to plan out his next move. That's when a guy in a lounge chair next to him struck up a conversation. He took a liking to Hunter and suggested that he may hit it off with his friend, Melissa Cohen. And he was right. Hunter vividly remembers walking into the restaurant where he and Melissa met for their first date. And I saw um, in her eyes something that I fully recognized for some reason. And that was the unconditional love that uh, had been given to me my whole life, primarily by my brother, my dad, my three daughters. Uh, And I saw that. And... And I reached for it at a moment that it doesn't have anything to do with any rational thought. I knew 
that this was a person that if I got honest with, that could made me help me save myself. And I did. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you start dating and, and she's helping to nurse you back to life, uh, deleting every number in your phone that didn't contain the word Biden. And uh, yeah. she, you yeah. ended up getting married shortly after she saved you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and the one thing I, I, uh, I know is that she saved me by reminding me of all of the people that had been trying to save me for my, uh, for my entire life, um, uh, in the moments in which I needed it. And I allowed her to do things that I would never allow anybody else to do, like take my keys, take my phone, take any electronic device that I had and get rid of it, delete all of the contacts um, in my phone. I mean, at one point, you know, I mean, Melissa took all my clothes and that's what I needed because I was absolutely bargaining with her on a hourly basis when I could lift my head off a pillow to say, Hey, I, you know, what about just a drink? What, what if I only drink um, vodka between the hours of 8 AM and 10? And it's a really, really hard job, as you know, to wrangle a, a, a hardcore addict like that. Oh. It, it takes an enormous amount of love, but it, uh, it also takes an enormous amount of stamina and, uh, and strength. And she is all of those things. And in May 2019, just days after meeting her, Hunter and Melissa got married. At the same time, Hunter's dad was campaigning for the country's highest office. Now your dad's running for president. Uh, did your dad's campaign, did you fear that the stress would be too much for you to handle so early in your sobriety? Um, no. But I still have a healthy fear of uh, anything that, uh, that causes stress in that I know that I can't afford to, um, to allow that to, uh, to run wild. And when you're so stripped down to the bone, uh, focusing on um, what is in front of you at the outset is a um, necessity. Um, and what Melissa did for me was she put in front of me things that were beautiful, beautiful things. Hmm. She put in front of me the, the possibility of a life. She uh, put in front of me my paints so that I could start painting again. She put in front of me the time and the space to write like I had always done in my life. And I just started to focus on that. I started to focus on rebuilding the relationship with my three girls and trying to make amends for all of the pains just by my absence that I caused. All the other stuff seemed like nothing more than a, uh, than an, an enormous, oh, <laughs> incredibly <sure>. consequential distraction. <laughs> you know, somebody just said uh, the one thing you realize in, uh, in recovery is that the world does not revolve around you. But there were days in which, um, uh, during the last couple of years, in which it seemed like the rest of the world hadn't gotten that message. 
what was it like? You're, you know, through the campaign and even now after the election, you're still a regular target for people on conservative media. Um, when you're just trying to get through the day sober and people are questioning your character, digging up your past on a daily basis, how do you handle it? Well, part of it's easy because I know the truth and, uh, and, uh, and the truth has revealed itself um, in very stark terms about um, some of the more um, scurrilous uh, and uh, pointed attacks against me uh, that try to implicate my dad in some way. And so having the truth on your side is, um, is an advantage that I've had from the outset. But the other stuff um, is something that I just don't pay attention to. Uh, I don't read Twitter. I don't read the tabloids. I really don't. And I, and I, and, but by the way, it's not like that's an easy thing to do if you pick up your phone and you have an Apple news feed. Um, but I make a conscious decision that that doesn't bear any resemblance to the reality that I'm limited. And I say this to everybody that is, um, that, that is, that when I, when I was actively um, uh, before the pandemic, but when in, in my past recoveries, when I was really active in, uh, in the program, and I would say getting sober is easy. All you have to do is change everything. And part of changing everything for me was realizing that, uh, that I can only control uh, the things that I have um, dominion over. And that's not much, but I do know this is that I can control how I wake up in the morning and think about what I have to be grateful for every morning and set the table for the day that way. And then when the attacks start coming in in a way that obviously I have to engage in some way, um, uh, I just try to remain centered in that gratitude. That's a man who's been running for office since the age of 27 as the rest of his family comes out to celebrate as well. The son Hunter, the target of so many, gets a hug from his dad. Joe Biden never wavered in that love no matter what was thrown at his son? The night the election was called for Joe Biden, Hunter and the rest of his family stood on stage at a victory rally with the president-elect. Hunter was holding his young son, who he named after Bo. It was a historic moment. And you were sober. What was that experience like? What were you feeling on stage? I was in mixed emotions. And... I say that because my brother wasn't there and uh, and that overwhelming sense of uh, of not having literally just his physical presence. I know that he was there in a, in a way that I very much believe. And I felt that, but not being able to turn and uh, and hug him in that moment was, uh, it was really difficult. Difficult is a, the, a, a vast understatement. Um, but I, but I was, uh, I was so proud that 
uh, that not just by the achievement, but by this is that not just was my dad standing there and not just that he had me next to him, but my entire family, all of us never once wavered. We always stuck together uh, because that's the most important uh, thing I know, not just to my dad, but to all of us, is that we're together. Hunter Biden speaking with Vic Vela on the season two finale of Back From Broken. Hear the entire conversation at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and at CPR.org. Special thanks to the Back From Broken team, Vic Vela, Joe Erickson, Dennis Funk, Luis Antonio Perez, and Rebecca Romberg and Brad Turner. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Avery Lill. Thank you for joining us here on CPR News and KRCC.